This podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is growing their team with offices and remote teams across the globe. Visit shopify.com slash careers to learn more. I mean, the power might go out or something else ridiculous might happen. My, my laptop has a battery. <laughs> also, if the power goes out mid-recording, I'm pretty sure that we're going to redo the episode. What do you think smartphones are short, uh, for, Sean? <laughs> yeah, that's, now that's how you get featured on iTunes. This podcast was recorded on Sean's smartphone. I mean... I think that seems like a totally sensible and reasonable way to record a podcast that nothing could potentially go wrong with whatsoever. I actually could. Like, it's USB-C, <laughs> so I theoretically could plug my microphone into it, and it should be capable of using it. Ladies Hold and on, gentlemen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go switch my smartphone really fast. I gotta try this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen who are currently listening to this podcast, I apologize for what's about to happen. <laughs> Hi, Sam. Hi, Sean. So I've got a thing I would like your opinion on. Uh Uh-huh. So Diesel's support kind of, not support, but our our, our Gitter channel gets two consistent types of people that I'm never quite sure how to deal with. Mm -hmm. The first is folks who are really, really just in a stink when they arrive because they dislike ORMs and they assume that we're going to be just like every other ORM and they will have all of the problems they've had with other ORMs. Sure. The second and the more uh, and the one I'm really have been trying to think a lot about how best to deal with this are the folks who are confused in ways that diesel is different th- than other ORMs. So probably the biggest and there are a couple specific cases, but probably the two most common are number one folks who come from just virtually any ORM that has the concept of a model where you have a class that is one-to-one with a database table Uh uh-huh which diesel has nothing even remotely close to that we do have a thing that represents your database schema that is only there to represent your database schema and then it's typical to have at least one struct that it may map to a single database table but basically we have a thing called queryable which is like deserialize this from a thing that can be deserialized from a single SQL query or not necessarily a single query, but you know, a query of the right shape. Right. Your structs don't necessarily have to represent SQL tables. They can represent results from queries that the users are building. Exactly. And so, and so, and so like your sort of your, or at least the readable part of your model layer is like, uh, I'm, I'm going to write a query that outputs things that look like this. And like the thing that knows how to read into them is actually completely ignorant of the underlying schema in, in the database, right? It just knows that like, as long as the query has the right names for the columns coming out of it, how to deserialize into it. And so potentially you can have your, again, sort of here I'm using air quotes that the viewers at home can't see, uh, model uh, come potentially from more than one query as well, right? So it doesn't even have to be one-to-one to a table. It can be one-to-one to uh, queries as long as the data types, and uh, so, or sorry, one-to-many to queries as long as the names and data types match up. Uh, not even the names. Oh, okay. Or oh, sorry, the I guess it's the order. data that comes out of the query has to be in the same order as yeah. the deserialization into the struct. So if, let's assume for the moment that you're using Diesel specifically to build a JSON API. Yep. So you will probably be using Surday to serialize the results and deserialize the input, right? So queryable mm-hmm. is basically meant to go on the same struct that you would put derive serialize on. 
Sure. Right. And then we also have insertable and as change set, which are here's a thing that you can use to insert into the database. And here's a thing that you can use to update a record in the database. And those Mm -hmm. are one to one with a database table because insert and update are tied to a single table in SQL. And the way that the confusion that a lot of folks have most frequently manifests itself is they will want to use the same struct for both and they will run into trouble because your queryable struct will have an ID field on it. And Mm -hmm. you do not want to insert with the ID field. You can actually put as change set on a thing that has the ID field because we will never attempt to update the primary key. Okay. Unless you like explicitly do, you know, ID.eq, whatever you want the new ID to be. But like we ignore primary key fields. But insertable is the main one where folks tend to get tripped up because oftentimes, but not always, right? Oftentimes the only difference is that there's an ID field on what you get out and there's no ID field on what you put in. Sure. And so folks come in and are like, hey, is there a way for me to tell Diesel to ignore the ID field for inserts? Or why? Or the more common one is, why do I have to have two structs? Sure. And this was a uh, deliberate design decision, right? So same thing, if we're assuming a JSON API, right? Or actually, if we're assuming even a normal web app, your insertable and as change set structs are one-to-one with a web form which may happen to be in sync with your output right now, but those two things change for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So it's intended to be basically more focused on the domain that you are operating in, in your application, more so than like have everything mapped to individually to SQL tables. Sure. So in Go, one of the things that you can do is you can take like one struct type definition and embed it in another struct type definition with additional fields, right? So you could totally imagine in Diesel, you would have your like queryable, which is ID and then an embed of the like updatable struct, right? But like that would only work if Rust has struct embedding and I'm not sure if it does. So Rust, I mean, Rust has struct embedding in that the layout in memory would be identical. Right. It does not have struct embedding in that like you can make it so user with id dot user dot name can be just done as user dot id dot name right diesel actually supports struct embedding for everything other than queryable why uh it is impossible for us to write it uh basically what we what we would need to be able to do (laughs) is somehow convert in rust a tuple of an integer and another tuple of arbitrary unknown stuff into a single flattened tuple uh-huh. Or you would have to, in your select statement, group up the fields as they're grouped. If we're talking about like arbitrary struct embedding and not special casing, just the ID and then everything else, right? Yeah. So you could have three fields. The first one's the ID and the next two take some number of other fields. We need to know exactly how many fields each one takes. And that basically just requires flattening out this tuple. And that's not something that we can represent in rust today so the answer is you don't have like a a nice easy language solution to offer your users i understand your like decision to split your queryable and insertable here on the basis that like there's usually no id on one and there's almost always an id on the other right although just that right i mean think about your active record models that you've written in your life Uh how often has there actually been 
shared logic that is used both by like a save callback and also by methods that are called from the view. Well, I just try never to write callbacks, so okay, or not callbacks, but you know, you, you know what I, you know what I mean, right? Your logic around around persisting a structure is very different than the methods you want when displaying it. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, but I do also sort of understand like the potential, the potential ergonomics issue there, like be, being able to pull something out of a database and then round trip, like make some changes and round trip it back in without having to change the type seem, seems like a thing that would be really nice if it was available. And that, um, is, and that is if you're specifically updating, because updating, like I said, can totally, uh, and, and in fact, we actually have semi support for this that I've been thinking about deprecating forever, but haven't pulled the trigger on it. Uh, so we have a we have another trait called identifiable. Like this represents a single row of a single database table, and if your struct implements both identifiable and as change set, you can just call dot save changes on it, okay. which actually still returns a new thing, and that new thing can be of any arbitrary type, but it's very easy then to have that be the same it, type. Yeah, it, honestly, it sounds to me like more what you probably have is like a, a documentation issue around why this exists than like this being a fundamentally non-sensible thing, right? And so like, I do I do wonder to some degree then if you've got a lot of potentially newer people coming in and asking you this question, if that indicates that your documentation or, or the guide that you have on the internet needs some kind of change so as to like really aggressively hint to people that this is a deliberate API design and these are the reasons why. Because it's it's not like, Nothing about this smells like a terrible design to me now that I've had a chance to poke at it. And, and so the question I might ask myself is, how can I change the documentation or user experience to make it obvious that this is what you're supposed to do and why you're supposed to do it? And, that, and that's sort of the heart of what I'm getting at. Uh -huh. And actually, I do want to take one step back before we get into the documentation stuff, because I think you, you raised a good point about it's not inherently nonsensical, because the thing is, it is actually possible to use the same struct for all three things if you want. Right. But what you'll have to do is the type of your ID field will have to be option whatever integer size you're using. Uh-huh. Which then becomes painful for, for other reasons. This is also part of why our associations are designed the way they are. Right. And so that's, I think, a very good way to lead into when folks are asking about this. I, I agree with you. Like that, that gives me a very specific place to point out. And here's why the design is... Well, th that actually isn't the reason why. The, for me, the reason is because the, the structure of my form for taking in user input for creating a new record does not map necessarily to what I'm, what's in sure. my JSON API. But no, anyway, totally. um, but that's a very specific reason of like, if we didn't do it, here's what you would have to do instead. Hopefully you can see why that's painful. I mean, the other, only other alternative would be like, we have some way to say like, if this field is zero, don't, don't so, insert so it, which is... This is how we solve this problem in Go, and it, it is not enjoyable to me. Is so, it nil? so uh, no, 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 no. So, so nil is only available on pointer types in Go. Oh, right, so, that's right. So, like for example, if you if you and actually this is this is how gRPC solves the solution is like because your data types on your gRPC structs are not pointer values to the pointer of the type they are because that would be hideously inefficient by comparison with just embedding them in the data that's being serialized over the wire but if you if you create a new gRPC object and don't set it to a value it's like whatever the default initializer over that type is right so for integers it's the zero value for strings it's the empty string like etc cetera, etc cetera. and 
this actually this actually extends to all of how uh, Go allocation works, right? So so in Go, you can any any struct that is public, you can instantiate a, a version of it by saying like struct type open curly close curly, and you don't have to specify all of the fields that are in that struct. And what that will do is the same thing. It will acquire uh, enough space for each of those things with the default initializer. But it doesn't so zero actually, it out. Uh, I want to be clear. I mean, so, right, this think... isn't zeroing it out. This is specifically no, 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 doing no, some no, arbitrary no, value. No, no, and sorry, when I say it, uh, default initializer, I mean it does it does zero out. So, so an field string is, is represented as zero? <laughs> no, it's it's so under the hood, Go has the concept of a default initializer for all of its types, right? So for integers, it's zero. For strings, it's the empty string. For pointers, it's nil, and like so on and so on, right? And so, like, right, actually, I, I, what, what I'm saying is like, but this is, and this is similar to how structs work in C. I, I mean, actually, yeah. this is exactly how structs work in C, except with C, it is very specifically zeroed out yeah so it's not it's not zeroed out right it's it's whatever the default value of the type is which is a very slightly different thing and this Can is you this define is what, the default value for your own types nope of course of course you can't it's go the <laughs> so language it's, it's doesn't... yet another thing where go has decided this is important enough that our types need to be able to do it but nobody else is allowed to do this <laughs> right well your struct is composed of their their primitive types right but so so like for example the reason i bring this up is is uh if you just say give me a pointer to an http client struct open curly close curly that is actually a functioning http client struct in go you do not need to call the new method to make an http client in go which i actually think is kind of really cool in that like all of the underlying implementation actually knows how to initialize the rest of itself uh if it hasn't been like initialized already uh this is what the go people call resource acquisition is initialization that's uh that, like not at all what that is though there's <laughs> also why this is the worst name for something ever oh <laughs> uh, we're gonna get all of the Go programmers mailing us in and being like, "You're this is inaccurate." His no, because literally, literally, RAII is what Rust and C do. Go does not do it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Anyway, let's let's come back to to Diesel. So yeah, exactly. You'd have to use zero as like a sentinel value to mean this was not initialized, and that can get you into all kinds of. Pro or God forbid, if your type is a string, the empty string. It, it's not even right? so much saying like this is a sentinel value. Actually, what it would be is is an annotation that folks would be able to put on the field. Which I'm not. I want to be clear. This is so. This is a feature request that's come in several times. Like an annotation to skip this field for one half of the or for one piece yeah. of the the story. I'm not yeah. as opposed to doing that for insert and update as I am for queryable. I'll maybe get into why I'm opposed to it for queryable later. But like that would really be what it is, right? It's just an annotation. Put on the ID field. Skip for insert. Something like that. Yeah. Um, the the big question is though, right? Then what do you put there? How does it get there? Does it does it uh, potentially become confusing is it likely to introduce latent subtle bugs that this field is populated with some value that is nonsense and will be ignored yeah i guess is it easy for you to add shadow fields uh to structs with your macros so could you what is could a you shadow field so like a, a field that the user hasn't created that's like underscored this this was written no, that by... is an impossible thing for us to do okay cool because like my 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 like spooky spooky API design from from Rubyland was like you could you could make the field be a populated thing and then have a like 
break if this was populated like invisible field on the thing but yeah don't do that it's a terror like so basically you basically don't have a good option for dealing with like this field was populated but skip it for insert or querying right like right is, basically is, just is will ignore if it's populated which is a thing that we can do it just really rubs me the wrong way I sort of I'm inclined to agree with you that if you, if you were to offer that that would be a foot gun of monumental proportions. But that said, you know, it would still be nice ergonomically right for the folks who are expecting there to be the concept of a model. And one of the responses I've given actually too is that like diesel's derives are a possible implementation of these traits, but diesel is meant to provide there are certain things that we don't including diesel like for example sure. we do not have any out of the box solution for if you have a postgres enum and you want to map that to a rust enum like derive uh -huh. postgres enum we do have derives to make it possible for you write nine lines of code that say here's how i map it to and from sql but we don't have anything that's like a convention of and here is how the naming mechanism should map is, is um, that because it's impossible for you to make that type safe no, not at all. It's just because I don't want to I don't want Diesel to have an opinion on how your enum should be represented in the database and how that should map to Rust enums. Like I want Diesel okay. to work with you, with your database, however your database is structured. Got, gotcha, gotcha. There are, as far as I know, two crates, and, th and this is exactly why I didn't want to make an opinion in Diesel. There are two crates that that provide this derive, and they both have different opinions on how the Rust name should map to the Postgres name. Gotcha. Actually, I think one of them might assume it's represented as an integer. If I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but this is a similar thing. So like there's no reason somebody couldn't write like derive diesel model in a crate that isn't part of diesel that has stronger opinions about how things should be represented. Like, for example, if somebody wanted to write this right and they wanted to write it with as little code as possible, like without re without re implementing diesels derives. I could totally see like a derived diesel model existing that created a second struct with some hidden name um, mm. derived insertable for that and then implemented insertable for the queryable struct by creating an instance of this other struct and then and then calling the appropriate methods on that yeah like it wouldn't take a ton of code but it just leads to you have to make you, you have to make some some opinionated decisions about what do you do with the id field and the other ones would be updated at and created at are the three that are likely to exist Sure. Only on queryable that wouldn't exist on on inserts and updates. And you could totally does, does diesel does diesel manage created at and updated at for you? So created at, uh, we say, hey, default now is a really it works really <laughs> really well. Um, sure. Updated at, uh, we take the stance that is best handled by a database trigger. Okay. If you are using Postgres, we provide a built a function you can call in your migrations because I can never remember the syntax for creating a trigger in Postgres. So you can call you can do select diesel manage updated at with a table name. I was actually five minutes before we started on this call thinking about, oh, hey, I can actually I, I we now have everything I need in diesel to make that work on SQLite. So I think in 1.4, I will make it so you can do that in SQLite. Um, nice. We can't provide that function for MySQL because uh, MySQL does not let you modify database schema from uh, stored procedure.
Okay. Or actually, it's not even that. Actually, it doesn't let you do it from a prepared statement. And the only way to make this function work is to create a prepared statement where you interpolate the table name uh, into it and then execute mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yes, my my SQL and schema changes and transactions and prepared statements. I'm transactions are the fun one. We have so many tests that are CFG not MySQL because we can't we can't modify database <laughs> schema inside a transaction. <laughs> So anyway, let's come back to something we were talking about earlier. So, so earlier, I sort of suggested that like in vanilla diesel, assuming like the most popular crate in the universe doesn't come out for this, that there are probably documentation or like guide or tutorial changes that you could make uh, to make to make this more obvious. Yes. Is that like a very natural place in diesel's documentation where you think people are getting tripped up on this? Uh, that you might be able to insert like more of a rationale or like an explainer as to what's going on. Well, that, so that's where I'm not sure. Like, okay. I could create a new guide. I sure. Could, I, I could say, go and write a coming to diesel from other ORMs guide. That is specifically, yeah. here's where we're different from, let's say, uh, Active Record or Django ORM. Actually, I don't know how many people come from Django RM. I think I hear Flask more. I know it's definitely one of the two Python RMs that a lot of people come from. The other sure. one is uh, is Hibernate. Like those are the three people come from most frequently. So I could totally write a guide for if you're coming from these, here's how we're different and what to expect. Right. The problem is we already have an issue with discoverability where most questions that are asked, there is a specific page I can link them to with the answer. And in okay. fact, I even often point out to them, hey, the top level documentation for diesel has this paragraph where to find things that like would would have walked you through exactly given the question you just asked how to have found the answer. But people aren't finding that already. Interesting. Do you do you get a sense? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you're sort of like asking people like which documentation have you already dug through and that sort of thing or, or whether you're like dropping the answers into them but also like i guess the inverse question is do you have any sense of how much your documentation is deflecting people from asking those questions in the first place no i mean if somebody found the answer in the docs and didn't ask a question as the result like as a result then i never find out about that the only real metric i have for that is we used to get a lot of complaints about our documentation uh-huh the only complaint we get these days is that it's hard to find things but we never get complaints anymore that like the the answer to their question wasn't documented which it was a uh, uh, that was you know between 0 0.16 and 1.0 i went into the wilderness for two months and wrote and did nothing but write docs for like six hours a day sure but you you mostly wrote sort of like library and api level documentation right no uh, and then i and then i wrote about a dozen guides i i actually intended to write closer to 20 and we didn't we didn't end up with 20 there's still a few that like the one there's this there's this one that i keep calling it the advanced querying guide uh -huh. and every time i try to write it i realize oh this portion of it should be its own guide Interesting. So I'm never sure we'll end up with the advanced querying guide, but like that's the main one that we're missing is sort of like the here. Now you've got the intermediate level piece of everything. Now here's how you do arbitrarily complex SQL queries. Sure. Do you have a cheat sheet? No, because I'm not sure what the cheat sheet would be for. So I might suggest having a like single document, which is like just a series series of recipes like doing a select, doing a select with a join, doing a select with a left outer join, you know, uh, or like, in so just, just like 
really high density, really, really low explanation, right? Which is kind of like you're trying to do something with Diesel's API. Here's everything you could possibly ever think to do in one singular composed document. So here's the reason I haven't done that. Uh huh. Our API is structured very, very specifically. Like Rust documentation has a search tool that works really well. And right. We name our methods after the SQL. Um, yeah. So, there are a handful of exceptions where we can't. And there's a list of like, here are the things that are not exactly named for the SQL that they're related to. But like, here's how you do a left join is it's literally you call dot left join. Sure. I, I will say one of the things I think I've found with rust doc i've not spent much time in diesel so I don't, I don't know if this is true of yours is that like i often know the name of the thing i'm trying to do and i find it and i find the function i'm looking for and it tells me like approximately all the types but like i'm not necessarily sure which of the ones that i have and then i then i end up like going down a rabbit hole of like which thing do i actually have how do i get to the thing that i need to call this method that clearly like and so like it's to some to some degree it's not about like no, knowing what the thing is called so much as like how to do it inside a wider chain right yeah. so like for example the moment you're, the moment you're doing doing it on a traity a, a trait like thing right and that that trait will from or to into like or sorry like something will from or to into something that is of type of that trait it can be really hard to track down whether or not you have the thing that you need right so, and so, and so this is really what I say when I mean cheat sheet is like, let's say, let's say you have a connection, like here's all the things that you can do to it. And some places where people commonly fall over, right? Oh, you can't do anything to a connection in diesel. Oh, you know what I <laughs> No, I know what you mean. And so this is actually one of the really interesting things about writing documentation for diesel. So I, I think you've raised an excellent point in that. Yeah, you don't necessarily know what type you have, and you never know that in Diesel, basically. And the thing is, we can't document what types you can call this on. So, like, inner join's a great example. What types can you call this on? Well, anything that influence inner join DSL. What types influence inner join DSL? Well, there are some types in Diesel that implement it, but that's not the type you have. You probably have a table that's local to your, your application that was generated mm -hmm. by Diesel. And so this is why we actually can't lean very much like we make most types so we have a, we have a type that represents a select statement in diesel it's private right. it has no documentation you cannot click on it because it isn't the type you're working with most frequently and it's not useful to you to know that it exists and i don't want you to couple yourself to it <laughs> right. um, there are other types that like they don't necessarily from or into it but they but but we write implementations that make them pretend to be that type. So we have to lean really, really heavily on examples. So we try to never have any method in our documentation without at least one example, preferably one example for every possible variation of how you would ever call it. Right. So this this right here is the composed argument for a cheat sheet because it's it's the transpose of that documentation. Because right now you have examples for how you're probably going to call it on in like associated with each thing that you want and in, instead not like in one big discoverable list, right? And so like, literally, you could probably write your cheat sheet as a composition of all of those example cases in one big long document. I guess the thing is like, that document is the API documentation for query DSL. Sure. Because so, this so is a trait that like is the, it has, it was added in 1.99, uh -huh. which was a release that was made for documentation purposes. <laughs> Because th this this only exists wait, because wait, they release one dot nine nine. Yes. Okay. 
1.99 or I'm sorry, uh, 0.99. Yeah, I, th- I thought so. I was like, I, I was like, wait, Diesel's having a 2.0 soon. That's uh, Diesel is having a de- uh, 2.0 soon. Oh, well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I mentioned <laughs> on the bike shed. I don't believe you ever did. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, one one four is probably going to be the last 1.0 release. We're still figuring out the messaging around it. There's a lot of discussion on our discourse if you are interested in this. We're going to treat 2.0 no differently than any point release. There will be no changes in 2.0 that are more... If you treat deprecations as errors, 2.0 will not be any more difficult for you than any other release. But it's going to include some changes that, for various reasons, cannot go through a deprecation cycle or would cause more harm if we tried to make them go through a deprecation cycle. But we don't expect the changes to affect the majority of users, and we need to make a few breaking changes to be compatible with idiomatic Rust 2018 code. So we're using this as an excuse to uh, clean up a few mistakes that we made in 1.0. Cool. Uh, but anyway, 0.99, yeah. So there, there's a bunch of you know traits that represent like stuff you can do to a select statement. So like the select method comes from select DSL. The filter method, which is where in languages where where is not a keyword, comes from the filter DSL. One thing that's great about Rust 2018, raw identifiers, you can now have arbitrary identifiers. They have to be quoted in a syntax that you would never use, but it means I can create the function where so that if you search for where it shows up in, in, in the search, which will be great. Nice. Uh, but anyway, but like it's literally it's just a list of everything you can do to a select statement. This trait itself has no behavior. It literally only exists for documentation purposes so that I can have oh. these all on a single page. Cool. So that that's your cheat sheet for select statements. Yes. Great. Now you just need to do the same thing for inserts, updates and all the other crazy SQL that people write and you should be golden. I guess there's there's not as much you can do to inserts and updates. And we Uh, we do have guides for those. You can update where and then a bunch of crazy stuff, right? Right. But like literally, that's just like documentation is you can call filter on this. It works the same as select statement. You can also pass any select statement that you've called filter on. Cool. Great. I'm not saying that I don't think a cheat sheet would be valuable. I'm just not sure what it would have that isn't that is different from this page of documentation we already have. Yeah. And how to get people to look at this. Yeah, I guess I guess I, feel like like, I'm ar- I guess I feel like I'm arguing more than I than I ought to be. But I, I, I guess here's the difference, right? If this is the sanction and bless like query DSL is not the most discoverable name versus everything you ever want to select the cheat sheet, right? Like one of one of those is probably more blindingly obvious than the other is, is the is the mere point I'm making is that like if it might just be a naming issue. Sure. And so that's, I guess, where the, the struggle is here, right? Is, right. So if you go to our top level documentation, like literally the documentation for the diesel crate, mm-hmm. and you don't click on anything else, you just go there. Uh, the, there's a big section called where to find things. And the first thing in constructing a query is if you're looking to do things to a select statement, everything is on the query DSL trait with a link to that documentation. So I could just as easily have that be a link to a cheat sheet. Yeah, I guess the problem here, I don't necessarily think it's naming, it's discoverability. And whatever link yeah. I create to a cheat sheet could just as easily be a link to this trait. Yeah. OK, so I guess I guess then the question is, when people say they have discoverability issues, what are the discoverability issues they're having? Most often, it seems to be they never thought to type in the SQL that they wanted into the search bar. Interesting. Oh, my God. You know what you could do? You could do a SQL to Diesel. Like... 
I mean, you, you know that was originally the plan for Diesel was uh-huh. just a macro that would that you would type Except- your whole SQL query into, and we would type check it at compile time. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm only being slightly flippant though, right? Like, you, you know, like those online tools, like there's Rubula or like Go JSON Parser or like a bunch of others. Like, you could totally have a tiny little web-based JavaScript tool which uses one of those SQL parsers to like take people's SQL statements and spit out like the, like perhaps not exactly what the like the one to one representation in diesel, but something that would probably get someone really close. I mean, if you've right? got a, if you've got a, par- a working parser like the one to one representation in diesel is likely to be incredibly trivial because right. diesel, like that's a big design goal of diesel is that the SQL we generate from a given API should never be surprising. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be one to one. You know, for example, like select star is sort of your default, right? So we don't we don't right. make you specify a select statement, which shouldn't be hopefully isn't a controversial decision for folks who have used not even ORMs, but like query builders in general. Well, the, the other thing is that you actually behind the scenes t- like spit out all the column names. Right. right. And it's not even so much behind the scenes. It's more that your table has the concept of a default select statement. And that default select statement is the list of all columns, not star. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And that's just because um, our APIs are ordered, not not by name. We do have a separate API, right? So we have the API for if uh, we have a, an API we introduced in one dot one for if you are writing a full SQL query by hand, like you're mm-hmm. just giving a SQL string and nothing else. It's really painful to have to care about column order, and you probably want to write select star there. So we actually do have a separate API for that is intended for if you are writing raw SQL by hand. And that one is specifically by name, not by index. Gotcha. Anything else you'd like to talk about on this? I actually have <laughs> one more one more thing I'd like to ask you. Sure. Uh, go for it. Okay. So, Sean, I have a friend who has a Rails application that they are upgrading from Ruby 2.4 to Ruby 2.4.1. And literally nothing else changes in their application. And when they deploy it, the 2.4.1 instance getting deployed immediately causes their Postgres database to spike to 100% CPU usage. <laughs> and I have I have no idea why this is happening. I've tried to do some <laughs> debugging with them, uh, look for anything obvious. So like flush and rebuild the both libpq and the Postgres gem in that Docker container, <laughs> like from happen? scratch. No cat. Well, well, I happen to have someone who knows a thing or two about Ruby Postgres database integration on I'm a call get, with me. Folks can't see me. I'm I'm shaking my head and giving Sam a face. I have no clue how a change in a Ruby version could possibly cause that. Like the PG gem is mostly C code. Right, exactly. So my assumption is that some ABI somewhere, and here, here ABI, not API, right. uh, has changed between Ruby 2.4 and 2.4.1. But you've rebuilt that, the crate, or the, the gem, rather. Yeah, I have, but like, I don't, I don't know what else it could possibly be. Because there, like, there's no ABI, there is, so to be clear, there is no stable ABI for Ruby, which is why right. gems are compiled, uh, you know, against an individual Ruby version when you install them. Right, but you, ex- you expect a teeny version of Ruby to not ha- have almost no impact to this whatsoever, right? Like Almost no impact, not the same as no impact, which is why Ruby does not use gems compiled against 2.4.0 with right. 2.4.1, right? Like, it should I, be impossible to accidentally do that. Yeah, and so, and so she, she's tested configurations where they, like, only deploy one 
like instance to two four one and leave all the others running two four oh two four one on its own in isolation like and I'm just like I don't I don't understand how this is physically possible. I mean, have you TCP dumped it? I know this was the advice you gave me last <laughs> time, but this is I think actually good advice here. Have you so, so seen they, what is it? What data it is actually sending to the database? Yes, they haven't yet isolated it down to a single query. But like the thing is, right? It should like active records not going to generate different queries between the Ruby versions. Like it shouldn't. So, I mean, I would so, love to know, I, like I would love a, a bug report. I'm I, I'm sure, like you said, they have an isolated just query. Like I'm sure they don't have what they would need to submit a bug report. But if you could give me a script, right, that like right. does something on two four zero and bumps the database to two four one, I would love to. I would love to get that because I could certainly, if I have a script, could tell you. Like, at the very least, whether or not this is a bug in Rails, I can't imagine it is. Uh, I mean, or rather, it is certainly a bug in Ruby. Uh That is is where the final fix needs to be. But if if it is something that Rails can work around, I would love to work around it. Well, I mean, the the other potentially right, it's a bug in the PG gem, right? Like they they are reaching into a struct in Ruby. They should not be reaching into. Actually, no, there should be nothing the PG gem is relying on, like. 241 is a teeny version release. Uh-huh. Ruby doesn't follow Semver, but it does follow the teeny version releases do not involve API changes. Uh-huh. So presumably, if it if it's something that the PG gem is relying on that has changed in behavior, that's still a bug in Ruby because that should not have changed in behavior in 241. That that's all that said, this is why I made that face that the that the listeners unfortunately can't see. Because it's a really, it's a really like surprised, disappointed face. Yeah. Like I there should the the interface by which the PG gem communicates to Ruby is small and not related to to the network. Right. Right. It just and uses it, libpq. And and the thing that's really interesting there, right, is that it's the database that's going to 100% CPU usage. Right. If it if it was like the worker node, I could 100% absolutely like believe that you know some change in the Ruby version on your Rails app is causing its activity to go to 100% CPU for like Ruby bug reasons. But like for that to take out a database node right. is like imp- is very impressive to me. I mean, like, honestly, I- it also it probably also constitutes a bug in Postgres because no client should be able to do that. I mean, without executing some quit, some query that's specifically like. Well, well right. So my even question should take up 100% CPU. My my question, and I, I'm going to I'm going to follow up to see if I can get an answer on this one. Is is this that like something that has changed is causing Active Record to change how it generates a query, which like should not be the case, but you know Ruby Ruby may should have not a bug be the there. case, and I cannot possibly imagine how if that were the case, it was the case in a way that pegged a database at 100% CPU usage. Right. Well, unless unless the query that was suddenly generated was you know thousands of times more expensive to run for who I, I mean subtle changes to sql queries can do that right but like you're you're very you're very correct in that like the chain of failures for it to be a wildly different query seem unlikely and specifically teeny one that that causes that sort of cpu usage because like the database is able to process multiple expensive queries without using without reaching 100 cpu usage right and then the other the, the other is that like some Ruby bug is causing the libpq gem to like send weird and different frames to the database. That's uh, that's why I'm, I, I would be interested in a TCP dump because um, Postgres has a surprisingly easy to understand messaging protocol. Yep. 
So I would actually be very interested in right, you know, not necessarily for the entire run of an application. Yeah. But if you have timestamps correlated to right before the database hit 100% CPU usage, just yeah. every message that got sent to the database. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the answer must be there, right? It has to be sending something to the database unexpectedly. Yeah, I think actually a problem that they have is that this is a like this is a pre-production deployment of their application, so it's actually talking to their production database. So if you're if you're TCP dumping at the database side, uh, you're gonna have a bad time because it's you know it's also you've got all the regular. Oh, right, traffic no, I'm, I'm talking about TCP there. dumping from the client side. That's actually not a horrible idea. That might be the advice I give them: is do a TCP dump of of this application, and we'll take a look at it. Um, I'm like I'm very interested to take a look just because I'm like that. That's not how Ruby works. Like, no, it is not. Of everything I understand about how Ruby works, that's not how Ruby works, and I want to know the answer. No, and actually, if you want, I've got a mostly working parser for that. That's <laughs> like decoupled from other things for the nice. Postgres uh, wire protocol. Like I could send you a thing that takes that takes in this data and spits it out in a human readable form. Like it's literally taking an existing library and then calling Rust print line with the question yeah. mark and that turns it into a human readable form. Nice. Um, I, I can send I will, you that script if that's helpful at all. I will let you know where okay. I go on the on this adventure because I'm I'm definitely going to spend some time with my friend to see if I can help them work out what the problem is because this sounds hilarious and interesting to me. Yeah, no, as much as I get that I would be the person to answer, no, I have absolutely <laughs> no idea how that could ever be the result of a teeny, actually even of a major version update to Ruby. Like, I have no clue what could possibly cause that to happen. So, so apparently the issue also persists through into Ruby 2.5. I, I mean, that makes, I would assume, yeah. Which is like really interesting because they, they like bumped to 2.3 and it was fine. And then they bumped to 2. They actually bumped all the way from 2.3 to 2.4.1 and they were like, this doesn't work. Let's try 2.4.0. And it totally worked on 2.4.0. And so like the, the other thing is like bisecting uh, compiled Ruby, like manually compiling Ruby interpreters. That down. would be worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, although I don't know how many commits there are in there. And you're talking about, you know, like maybe a dozen. Like a nice thing about bisection is it's, it's logarithmic, but you're still right. talking about maybe Max a dozen. Seven. A dozen Ruby compiles. No, uh, max seven and probably less than that. Seven's at like at seven's at like ten thousand. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I will long I scale's will post, cool, man. <laughs> I will post updates if I discover more things. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be very interested to know what it was. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Shall we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it. Show notes for this episode can be found at yakshave.fm/three. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can email us at hosts at yakshave.fm, tweet us at underscore yakshave, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Yakshave, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify builds products that help entrepreneurs around the world start and grow their businesses. Shopify is now a team of over 3,000 with offices and remote teams across the globe. They're growing quickly and building an international team that will define the future of entrepreneurship. Visit shopify.com careers to find out what they're working on.